Lord, we agree with those prayers and do desire for salvation for not only Emmy's friend, but uh, others that many in this group uh, have contact with and their relatives and acquaintances and associates. We would just pray that you'd give us also an urgency to share the gospel with, with people in these these troubled days, that people would in fact realize that there's things beyond this world and that they need to consider what uh, what you say in your word. So we desire that you would use us in the culture. And we also desire this morning that you would equip us as we look into your book, your book of Romans, and that it might give us insight into how to better witness, particularly to Jewish people, but people in general. So we commit our time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I'd like to get us back into Romans 11. And I think a major underlying theme of the whole chapter is the idea of God's faithfulness and more specifically faithfulness to the nation of Israel. And I gave you a little bit of an introduction to the chapter. Last time, we only got through two two verses. We'll see if we can get through verse four this morning. Give you a little quick review there. But the focus, God's faithfulness. If you remember at the end of chapter eight, chapter eight ends in a very high note in terms of eternal security, that uh, the love of God cannot be lost by those who have trusted in him. So a note of God's ongoing faithfulness to those that have been called to himself. And one of the reasons for chapters 9 through 11 is, well, what about Israel? Uh, didn't God make promises to them? Weren't they considered his people at one time? And now they seem to be set aside. And are they permanently set aside? The idea of uh, all of the covenants and promises, we looked a little bit at some of those last time. This brings into question the faithfulness of God. So chapters 9 and 10 that we've already looked at give us a little bit of the negative aspect to the people that resided in the city of Rome to a believing community of several churches, some of them house churches, probably some of them smaller than our group here. And he's explaining to them, no, God is faithful to all of the covenants, all of the promises in relationship to Israel. Yes, they have been set aside on a temporary basis, but it's not a permanent setting aside. It's a time of discipline. So he is vindicating not only the righteousness of God, but the faithfulness of God. In fact, every aspect of who God is by explaining why God sovereignly has chosen Israel. And in that choice, some were passed over, and others were the focus of the covenant. So he goes all the way back to Abraham to indicate that God is still in the process of choosing, and he's also chosen some Gentiles, obviously passing over others. So the sovereign God who chose Israel is setting aside Israel, and they are rejected because they have rejected the, the promises and particularly the Messiah that was promised. So they are under discipline, but that's not a permanent discipline. They will 
ultimately be restored. So we have Israel's salvation in chapter 11. So it's the positive aspect and primarily the future. I've used the illustration of a family situation, a child that is under discipline. The child may feel like the parent doesn't love them, but the father will tell and explain to the child, you are my son and always will be, just like Israel will always be the children of God corporately. They're always within the covenant, the Abrahamic and other covenants. So you are my son and always will be, but I have to do what I know is best. And in the broader plan of God, the father's going to give attention to perhaps other children while the son is under discipline. And the question might arise, well, how is this so fair? Why is this happening? Or the first part is chapter 9, verses 1 through 29, but then beginning verse 31 to the end of chapter 10, the focus is on Israel's unfaithfulness, and they are being disciplined because they deserve it, as the son would be as well. Then chapter 11, when you respond rightly, I will restore you to fellowship within the family, using the illustration there. So also when Israel calls upon the name of the Lord, all the nation in chapter 11, all shall be saved, not every single individual, but corporately as a nation, they will accept their Messiah and receive forgiveness and fellowship with the one true God. So chapters 9 through 11, the context, Israel is God's chosen people. What about them? Why are they set aside? Why is God dealing with the Gentiles? So he's going to deal with the issue of the gospel going to the Gentiles. This is based on the sovereign plan of God all along, all the way back to many passages in the Old Testament. In fact, going all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant that includes Gentiles. But God is also setting aside Israel. He gives reasons. We looked up these verses last time as a reminder to explain the setting aside of Israel. But the question arises, is God finished with Israel? In other words, have they forfeited their position? And has God permanently abandoned them? And the answer is absolutely not. I was going to give you an overview of chapter 11 last time, and I forgot to include the slide, so I forgot to give you the overview. But in the overall outline here, the vindication of God's righteousness, you can look at chapter 9, the first 29 verses, past sovereign election of Israel. Chapter 9, verse 30 through the end of chapter 10, the present national rejection, corporate rejection. And then chapter 11, future restoration of Israel. So we have a past situation, present condition and an optimistic future restoration of Israel. That's chapter 11 that we started last time. And we can break down chapter 11 into three parts. The first 10 verses, that's where we're at this morning. I've changed the outline there. So on your outline sheet, I think looking at it more from the positive, both, both statements that I've got on the outline that I sent out, both of them are true, but from the positive, looking at this remnant. There's a remnant that is always present. You might subtitle it with the title that I gave you last time, that the rejection is only partial. It's not uh, total. So verses 1 through 10, 
focuses on the concept of a remnant that we'll talk some more on today. But beyond that, verses 11 through verse 32, there's a future restoration, and that's the focus of those verses. So he's going to lead up into that and then make that uh, very central statement concerning all Israel shall be saved. Keep in mind throughout these passages, in general, we're talking about corporate Israel as a nation, uh, not so much individuals, although obviously the individuals make up the totality. And then it closes with a wonderful passage, 33 to 36, filled with the worship of God. Now, that's a concluding passage of not just chapter 11. In fact, uh, we could uh, include it as a conclusion to all of chapters 1 through 11, when uh, Paul is completing his overall doctrinal portion of the book of Romans. And then in chapter 12, he's going to deal with the practical outworking of this concept of righteousness. So the making available or the giving of righteousness that starts in chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through dealing with Israel and God's righteousness, where God's righteousness is vindicated, 9 through 11. All of that is concluded with a passage of worship. So more specifically in chapter 11, for six verses, we have the existence of this remnant. Paul begins to develop the concept. We saw last time the essence of the issue. Israel, again, is raised. So our focus was, I say then, in other words, what can we conclude or what can we say in light of Israel's rejection of chapters 9 and 11? God has not rejected his people, has he? And you would expect a negative answer. And he gives the emphatic negative answer, may it never be. And I reminded you of how emphatic that is. And then he says, for I too am an Israelite. In other words, he gives himself as an example. So the last part of verse one, we looked at for I too am an Israelite. So not all of Israel has been rejected. And in fact, there are some in the nation, the early church, not beginning with Paul, but Paul being one of them, I mentioned the least likely. Paul is also a Jewish individual, an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. So there's no doubt that he's Jewish. We looked at all of those aspects to it. And he's a prime example that God has not totally abandoned Israel. And not only that, but let's take a look at this passage in verses 2 through 4 that focuses on Elijah, and while I'm introducing it here, you might keep your finger in, uh, in Romans, but you want to also take a look at 1 Kings 19. So if you want to turn there, I want to develop some of the background in that passage. So verse 2 begins with an echo. I'm uh, alliterating, as you can tell here, essence of issue raised. First part of verse 1, the example of Paul. The second part of verse 1, we have Elijah in parallel with the things that he's talking about, not only relating to Paul, but in terms of a remnant. 
We have a parallel in the Old Testament, and it's going to parallel what he's going to talk about in 6 and 7 as well. So we have an echo of the first opening statement. God has not rejected his people, has he, in verse 1. So he kind of repeats that. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So he expands it, and you might say repeats it, but I use the word echo to fall in line with the alliteration there. And again, we could reiterate, God is faithful to his covenants. God is faithful to all of his promises. We looked up some of those last time, and we looked at the little phrase, whom he foreknew. I reminded you of the context of foreknowledge in the book of Romans chapter 8, and even chapter 9, we have the concept relating probably to the concept of God choosing, and I think it's more than God simply in in his omniscience, knowing all things, also knows things in the future. For knowledge, certainly, that is the main focus of the word. But I think the usage in some context, and particularly in the book of Romans, has a little bit more than that, and has this idea of knowing in a more personal and in a more relational sense, and not only beforehand, but in terms of choosing as well. Now, I gave you a little bit of a, the debate that goes on with that word. Some have a hard time with that. So God has not rejected his people. And now he's going to give the example or follow up the evidence that tells us that God has not rejected his people, even in the darkest time in Israel's history in the Old Testament, probably the most dark time is a period of time in the reign of one of the northern kings by the name of Ahab, and his wife is probably more famous than he is. She's famous for her for her evil. So Elijah, in that context, makes an entreaty or a prayer or a request, or not a request, but a pleading. That's what the text says. Or do you not know what the scriptures say in the passage about Elijah? So let's consider that passage that is referenced here of Elijah. Now, if you do a detailed study and you compare it to the passage in 1 Kings there's a few changes that Paul makes, and, you know, scholars debate what he's doing here and what's going on. Keep in mind when virtually any of the passages that we have quoted in the New Testament, the authors don't quote in a formal sense all the time or necessarily, in fact, not even frequently. They may summarize a passage or they may in some cases, in fact, one of the suggestions that probably is the case here, they might quote a passage by memory, not having the passage before them. And uh, one commentator, in fact, one that we respect, Zane Hodges, suggests, suggests that perhaps Paul did not have a scroll of First Kings before him, which is possible, but he basically also says that's speculation. So do you not know what the passage 
of Scripture says concerning Elijah here, the passage. So it's not a exact quote. And under inspiration, we, we know that God guides, the Holy Spirit guides the author to give us what he intends. So any additions, any changes, or any insertions are under the guidance of the Holy Spirit and are for a particular purpose to speak to us in a fresh and new way in the New Testament. So in that in that passage, the setting is in the northern kingdom. Here's a map of the time of the divided kingdom, and you can see the greenish portion of Israel there. That would be composed of the ten tribes that rebelled after Solomon and went with Jeroboam to the north and set up their own system primarily a system of, of worship. That's the sin of Jeroboam, setting up two sites of worship, one in the southern part of that northern kingdom near Bethel there. See the little dot there? And then one at Dan in the farther northern part there. This was in rebellion. None of the kings to the north were godly kings. And that left Benjamin and Judah to the south. That would be the southern kingdom. So it's in that time frame, about 870 years before Christ. That would be the time frame of the reign of Ahab in that northern kingdom. And there we have a description. And let's start looking in First Kings. Maybe I'll have some of you read. So if you're in the passage I'll have some of you begin in verse 18. Let me begin with verse 16. That's the beginning of the paragraph. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab. That's that evil king. And obviously his wife is Jezebel, very famous. I don't know of too many Jewish families that named their daughters Jezebel. And even today, no one uses that, that name because she is so infamous. But Ahab, an evil king, Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. And it came about when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said to him, Is this you, troubler of Israel? So Ahab, Ahab is confronting Elijah because of the ministry of Elijah trying to call back the nation to Basically, a relationship with God, a repentance. They're an idolatrous portion of the nation, and Ahab describes him as the troubler of Israel. Would somebody read verse 18? Who's got that one? And I do. I ahead. do, Ray. Go ahead, Denise. He said, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and you have followed the Baals. Okay, so this this is an idolatrous practice following the Baals. Uh, there was a it was a god of the Canaanites, one of the main fertility and productivity gods of the the Canaanites. So here's a summary of Ahab's kingdom and reign, essentially. Somebody else want to care to read verse 19? Now, therefore. Okay. Oh. Go ahead, Go Linda. Ahead. Go ahead, Linda. 
We'll no, have we'll have Steve read verse twenty. Go ahead, Linda. All right, I'll let you see. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the four hundred fifty prophets of Baal, and the four hundred prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So there's Jezebel and uh, Ahab here on Mount Carmel, and for a map. Oh, thank you. Yeah, those of you that have visited Israel, it's in the northern part. See the Sea of Galilee to the right there. In fact, uh, oh, wow. just just north there is present-day Haifa, a major city of uh, Israel today. And we visited on both the last two trips, Mount Carmel there. So that's kind of the setting there, the gathering of 400 prophets or 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah, a female counterpart goddess that uh, also is a major god of the Canaanites. And Elijah is going to confront them. And we won't read the whole passage. It's a very familiar passage. But there's a confrontation and a demonstration and a call to Israel reject these false gods and turn to the one true God. So that's the setting of the place. Steve, read verse 20. Okay, verse 20. So Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel and brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel. There you see it. Exactly. Keep reading and read verse 21. Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you hesitate between two options? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. Okay. Now, we won't read the following passage. I'm going to just kind of highlight one little part here. But here we have the confrontation on Mount Carmel. We have the gathering of the gods or the prophets of the gods and the people of Israel, or at least representatives of the people. And it's kind of part of the passage that I kind of like and enjoy. You have to understand a little bit of what's going on here to appreciate it. But Elijah is very bold. And I say that because we're going to see a contrast of that. And even taunts them. And he sets the whole thing up. And he sets up these altars and... Uh, challenges the the prophets to make a sacrifice. And the challenge is, if your God is the true God, he will come down and consume the sacrifices you made. So they go through all of the, the ritual. And verse 27, and it came about at noon that Elijah mock, mocked them. So he's very bold. And it's kind of funny what he says. He, he said, call out with a loud voice, kind of mocking them. Your gods, they're hard of hearing, they're deaf, for he, he is a god. Either he is occupied or gone aside or is on a journey. Now, the little phrase there, gone aside, is he busy at the toilet? Is he busy going to the bathroom? That's kind of a humorous little side there, kind of mocking them. Or did he go on a journey and he, he can't hear you? He's so far away. Or perhaps he's asleep, you know, so exhausted. These gods are just weak gods and needs to be awakened. And he goes on and mocks them. So he is very bold here. And uh, we have this confrontation. And then we 
we see, if you skip down to verse 40, would somebody read uh, verse 40? Anyone got it? David, then go ahead. Then, I, then Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slew them there. Okay. The brook Kishon there, or however you pronounce it, you can see a little bit of it on the map there. So it's kind of the major river of this Jezreel Valley, which is to the north of the, the lines there, or north, actually east, I guess. Can you see the Kishon there? Uh-huh. So after the confrontation and after the gods could not consume the sacrifices on the altar, then God, in a very dramatic display of great, tremendous power, not only consumes the entire altar, this is after Elijah pours water to wet it all down, and it consumes all the water, etc. Very visual, very uh, demonstrative, if you will. And then we have that verse 40, these, these prophets, and on Mount Carmel, there's a memorial, I think we visited this site in 2017, and this, there's a statue there that commemorates the slaying of the, the prophets of Baal. And just below that, looking across the Jezreel Valley, there's the Kishon Brook and the valley looking from Mount Carmel. You see the, the, the green, the trees there, the vegetation. Uh, that's what it would look like from there. And on that location, here's a close shot of the Kishon. Uh, it's called a brook rather than a spring. As the river flows towards Kaifa, this is a shot closer to Kaifa. That's the Kishon. So that's the setting of the slaying of the prophets that is recorded there in verse 40. Now, everything shifts now. And the whole situation in terms of Elijah gives us a little insight that Elijah is fully, you know, he's this tremendous prophet and God used him in a mighty way. If you can imagine four, 450 and then you have another 400 of uh, other prophets, how is this one guy able to slay all those prophets? How is he able to do that? Not only great boldness, but uh, tremendous power, you might even say. The text doesn't tell us. It just tells us the location. And, and then notice there's a, there's a change beginning in chapter 19. And by the way, here's the traditional site of the slaying. Uh, we don't know exactly, obviously. Hey, Ray. Yes. Yeah, this is Jeff. Hey, uh, when Elijah calls out, grab them. Uh, to me, that suggests that there are other people there in the audience that aren't the priests of Baal. And not Elijah, because he's actually yes. telling somebody else, grab the priest. So one would suggest that there's probably a large audience hanging out watching. Yeah, and more than just Elijah. Yeah, good point. Yeah, I should have made that clear. But you're, there's still tremendous uh, boldness here and some cooperation from some Israelites probably. But anyway, the, thing, whole, the whole thing shifts. And back in Romans 11... This passage refers to what we have in chapter 19. We just set the, the stage for kind of this 
down, if you will, or a, a negative passage or negative situation in terms of Elijah. We have a little picture of the humanity. Obviously, he's a man, much much like anyone else, subject to to uh, fear and departing from the power of the Holy Spirit. So we have a tremendous display of what God can do in great power in one individual. And at the same time, we have the contrast of what the flesh is like. And the passage here refers to him pleading, how he pleads with God against Israel. So that brings us to Elijah, not only in victory, but now in fear. So let's keep reading and would somebody read, uh, who else is there? I think David was going to read earlier. David, do you want to read verse? Read the first three verses there. Chapter 19. Uh, after 19? Yeah, one through three. Still, I'm sorry, First Kings again? Yes, sorry. 19. First Kings 19, one through four. Oh, one through three, thank you. Actually, one through three first. Okay. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. And with all, hey, he had slain all the prophets with the sword. And Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me. And more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and went for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Now, Mike, my version says he was afraid and arose and ran for his life and yeah. came to Beersheba. So it's, it's kind of ironic here, Elijah, in the power of the Holy Spirit, is able to slay 850 of the prophets of Baal and Asherah, and one woman <laughs> strikes terror in his heart. Now, maybe some of you might be able to identify that. And he runs from uh, the northern kingdom. There's a bigger picture, a blow up of that same map. And you can see uh, Mount Carmel up there and Jezreel, Jezreel and the Jezreel Valley. That's the whole Jezreel Valley above there. So he runs as far as he can and still is in uh, the land of Israel. He leaves the northern kingdom. And those of you that have been there, you, you know, that's not going to be an easy jog. It's not even an easy bike ride, much less a a run kind of indicating and dra dramatizing the fear that struck Elijah from this threat from uh, Jezebel. So he goes down to Beersheba, which is the southern part of Judah. And you can see how far that is. That's, oh, maybe an 80, 90 miles, something like that, somewhere in that range. And remember, you do this by, by foot in, uh, in, uh, in that time frame. So verse 3, 11-3, we have the conclusion. I use evaluation of the situation of Elijah, but keep in mind this is in fear as opposed to in the power of the Holy Spirit. So, yeah, let's read the context some more, and then uh, we'll go back to the Romans passage in verse 3. Would somebody pick up in verse 8? And he arose and ate and drank. And went in the strength of that food 40 days, aha, and 40 nights to Oreb, the Mount of God. Now, this is from Beersheba. So he's going to go even further south. That wasn't far enough away for him. Keep reading, Linda. 
There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing there, Elijah? He said, Oh, should I go on? No, keep on. He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Okay, stop there. Now, skip down to verse 14 and read it, because it there's a little conversation between 11 through 14, but notice he says it again. He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. Oh, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword and I, even only I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Okay, he repeats it two times in uh, the same context, indicating that's kind of his perspective. And notice Horeb. Now there's a debate as to where Horeb is. Some see it as traditional Mount Sinai. It could be on the other side of that little strip of water there. And there might be a distinction between the two, Mount Sinai and Mount Horeb, which would be in the Midianite area. Either way, Notice how much further south Elijah is, stricken with the fear of simply a woman. So that brings us to the passage back in Romans. That's the passage, perhaps uh, summarizing verse 10 in 1 Kings 19 and or verse 14, or maybe a summary of both. Notice he quotes that passage, not verbatim, but somewhat of a loose quotation. They have killed our prophets. They have torn down your altars. Now he's referring to the nation of Israel. He's complaining. You know, oh, poor me, I'm the only one. And now I'm about to lose my life at the hands of a woman. So (laughs) there's no one left. I'm the only one. I alone am left. And they're seeking my life. God, this is it. This is the end of your your children. So in this great fearfulness, God answers him. And in uh, 11.4, we won't necessarily go, well, let's see, do I have it on there? Uh, yeah, I do have the reference. We'll go back to keep your finger in uh, First Kings. So here we have in verse 4, but what is the divine response to him? God is going to respond, Elijah, and in that, let's go back to uh, 1 Kings, and let's have somebody read, uh, in fact, why don't we read beginning in verse 15, and then we'll end in verse 18, and that'll give you the context of verse 18. Anyone else care to read? We've had Linda, we've had uh, Denise. I will, Ray. Go ahead. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria, and Jehu the son of Nimshi you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha the son of um, Shaphat of Abel someplace you shall anoint to be the prophet in your place, and the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael 
shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Okay, stop there for a minute, uh, and then I'll have you read verse 18. So God is basically saying, get back to your ministry that I've called you to do, and he gives him the details of what he wants him to do. In other words, Elijah, you need to deal with this fear. You need to face your enemy. You need to essentially trust in me because I am a faithful God and carry on with your ministry. And he's going to give him a different perspective. Go ahead and read verse 18. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knee that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. Okay. That is the passage. If you go back to the book of Romans, now we're basically done with First Kings, so you can stay in Romans now. In fact, we're getting close to finishing here. What is the divine response to him? This is it. This is what he quotes, What at least what Paul quotes. I have kept for myself. Now, the word there, I don't have it on uh, the screen there, but the word that is translated, have kept, is a word that is related to another word that we're going to look at in the next passage. There's a word that has the, that is translated remnant. And the basic idea of that word, I don't know if any of you did a word study. I kind of encouraged that, I think, over a week ago. I did, Ray. Great. Maybe you can give us a little bit of your results. But the word that we have here is katalepo. It's a verb. And essentially, it just doesn't have anything necessarily directly related to remnant, but it's the same word group, and it has the idea to keep or, or to leave in terms of everything else or to in terms of keeping something, something separate from, from other things. And the noun form that we have, and it only occurs in two places in the New Testament, both here, uh, one in chapter 9 that we already looked at. We'll go into more detail on this next week. But the idea... This word here is katalepo, and the other word there is lema, same word group, or hupolema. We'll look at those words next time. The idea of whatever is left, in other words, a remnant is something that is left over as a part of something bigger, something greater. And I think Paul is using that word here to kind of transition in that God keeps for himself, a remnant. And the specific in the time of Elijah, God keeping a remnant for himself, he's keeping 7,000 men who have not bowed to the knee of Baal. So Elijah, from his perspective, he seems to be the only one left, the only faithful prophet He's already slain the prophets of Baal, but in terms of Israel, Israel has no prophets. Israel, they've uh, torn down his altars. They, they've killed their prophets. Elijah is the only one left. And God is saying, no, you may not know it, Elijah, but I have kept, and we're going to develop this idea. In fact, we have a sovereign God 
And remember, in the context of foreknowledge, the context of choosing, God is the one that uh, chooses. God is the one that foreknows. God is the one that keeps for himself, preserves for himself faithful ones, those that he has chosen and those that he has called. And in the case of Elijah, there's 7,000 of them that have not bowed the knee to Baal. So I'll remind you some more of this. And uh, the next part of it, he's going to transition, and this will introduce us to what we'll look at next time. We have the parallel in Elijah, and, uh, and now beginning in verse 5, there's a present existent of a remnant. And that begins in uh, verse 5, and we won't get into it. I'll just kind of highlight a couple of things, and then we'll conclude. In the same way, then, so Paul is going to draw from that historical event, Elijah thinking he's the only one, God informing him that he, he, God, has preserved 7,000. God is the one that is still at work. God always maintains a remnant, even in the darkest of hours, and in this case, in Israel's history, and in the first century, in the same way, in this dark time when most of the nation of Israel has rejected the Messiah, in the same way, the text goes on, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant. And there we have another occurrence of that word group related to the keeping that we saw in verse 4. And uh, we'll develop the idea of a remnant. Uh, do you want to share a little bit of the insights that uh, you gained? Was that uh, uh, Denise there? Hi, Ray. I did a study where there were 84 out of 83 um references in the scriptures and several of them were uh, made over and over again but i wouldn't be able to pronounce the hebrew and or the yeah the um greek but i was i was interested to find it because i went on blue uh, blue bible and it was so much easier to do it that way mm-hmm. okay Any, that's, uh, uh, that's blueletterbible.com it's a great resource yeah any conclusions you came to concerning a remnant? Primarily, it says those that were, it's a remainder or a residual, a surviving or final portion. Yeah, that's a good description of a remnant. In other words, something left over. Now, it's used in a non-theological sense in the Old Testament of something that is just kind of left over. You know, you baked a pie and you had guests and now you have one slice that's just you put it back in the refrigerator, it's left over. That's the remnant. Now, you women will uh, remember the, the word use in terms of garments or cloths that you are making something out of uh, cloth, and then you have parts that are left over. A quilt is made from remnants left over from other projects that you've had. That's the idea. So we'll take a look at that. But theologically, that word is used in the sense, particularly in the Old Testament, that there has also come to be at the present time a remnant. Similar 
to what God has done in the Old Testament. So we'll talk some more about that next time. Point Ray, being, I have a question. Go ahead. Uh, didn't, um, wasn't there a prior instance where Elijah had thought that he was the only one and yet one of Ahab's officials had hidden um, some number of prophets and kept them from Ahab and Jezebel? I mean, Elijah would seem kind of prone to thinking that there was no one but him. And God's um, reminded him several times. Isn't isn't? Am I remembering correctly? I'm not sure about that. You might be rem remembering this passage that we're looking at here. It's a different passage. It, no, uh, I think it, I think it's in First Kings, also maybe seventeen of. Yeah, you might look Elijah. it up. Yeah, I don't remember the, that either. So yeah, okay. you might look it up. Yeah, I will. It's not in my immediate memory here. Okay. But uh, basically, uh, what I think we can draw from the passage is God is faithful to Israel. So we can be assured after Romans 8 that we will never lose our salvation. God is faithful to all the promises of Israel, including those that pertain to the future of the nation that cannot be seen so clearly because Israel is set aside today. And that gives us assurance that uh, he will be faithful to everything he has promised. So Israel is not set aside. The church has not replaced Israel. God remains faithful to them and the rest of Romans 11 will develop that further. But for us, no matter what our circumstance is, it may seem like God has abandoned us, but he has not. Perhaps we are in discipline, or perhaps we're in a dry spot in our Christian walk, but we can be assured that God is near. In fact, another concept that we've looked at in Romans 9 through 11 but God is utterly faithful. We just are in the midst of time and do not see all that God is doing, but we have the benefit of scripture to give us these insights. So we can take that away. Who wants to close in a word of prayer for us for today? I shall. Go ahead. Heavenly Father, thank you for this reminder that even in the hardest of times, when we feel pressed in, pressured, almost beyond bearing, that uh, we have no strength to stand for you in our circumstances. Thank you that you have promised that you will be with us, that your eye is on us, and that you are in process of working your plans out on a far vaster scale than we can possibly imagine. Father, you have promised to be with us for all, all time. Even to death, you are with us. And you are in process of working things out that if we could see them with our eyes, we would be astounded. So I give you praise and thanks and pray for that encouragement as we may be called to stand for you in the midst of a society that is increasingly godless, a society that has bowed the knee to Baals and kissed the mouth of the Baals. Father, I pray that you will encourage your children, that you are faithful to us and that we will be faithful to you. 
So we give you praise and thanks for your encouragement. We pray this in the gracious name of your son who was faithful and who remains faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, why don't you go ahead, Lou, and share a little bit of who you are. Okay. Um, yeah, like I said, and particularly, particularly Junko. I think everybody's interested in her her story, how she came oh, to, okay. came to the U.S. and that sort of thing. All right. Well, I'll start out with uh, I'm Ray's brother. Uh, we have a sister uh, named Geneva. A lot of people know. People know she goes to Hopkins. She's active in Hopkins town. Um, we have one child, Emmy, who uh, is. Uh, a senior at uh, Trinity University in San Antonio. Um, Junko, my wife, works at the labs. Uh, we've been married for 36 years. Um, she's a runner. She, she just got back, so she's in the shower. She'll be here in a little while. Um, there, she's training for her and a few friends. They're training for a marathon. Well, we're training for a marathon. I think they changed their minds because one of them's not uh, having back problems, but so she runs pretty much every day. Um, she was uh, born and raised in Japan. She came on an exchange program and ended up in a uh, little, little culture shock, but she ended up in Socorro, New Mexico, which is kind of the opposite of Japan. <laughs> Middle of the desert, hot, no, no water, where Japan is a beautiful, lush island. Um, she, she she thought that the whole United States was like Socorro, so imagine that. <laughs> they uh, she she came to she was hosted by a Catholic family. He was a deacon of the church, and uh, so they drove out to uh, L.A. or I think it was L.A. to to pick her up, and they said, "Man, this will be a perfect time to show her America. We'll just." go pick her up and we'll just start driving to New Mexico. Right. And so they didn't realize that, um, you know, when, when you drive in or um, when you fly internationally, that you, uh, get on an airplane and then you're on that. And, and you, you, I don't remember she changed planes, but you're on that airplane for a good day when, when you leave Japan. So they, they, uh, they get in the car because she, she'd been flying all night or in, in you know, in the process for 24 hours and they start driving and they start pointing out these things. And she's trying to, she's trying to keep her eyes open. They have to shake her to show her everything, shake her when they got to the Grand Canyon and all these things. But that's another story. Um, what else about her? She, she came, uh, she graduated from Socorro high school. Um, and then she, uh, went back to Japan because it was just, uh, it was just a, exchange program but then she talked to her parents into coming back to america and to go to college um so all, all, she of, ended up in, all, all of that was she was 16 years old yeah and then um uh, she ended up in first birmingham alabama for some reason i don't know uh how that happened she just must have put a finger on a map or something and said this might be a good place to go to college but that was even a bigger culture shock because uh, she was not used to, I mean, in Japan, there's no prejudice. Everybody's either Japanese or, you know, of that descent. So that was her first uh, encounter with 
prejudices them. You know, they still had uh, actually separate drinking fountains and stuff. That I mean, it, it, it was just an eye awakening thing for her, and she didn't uh, she didn't like it. Um, I think she went a semester there, and then she transferred back to Socorro, New Mexico, and uh, went to uh, what is it, New Mexico Tech? No, what is it? That what is it? Uh, yeah, New Mexico Tech. Yeah. Yeah, New Mexico Tech, which is a really good school. She had no idea what she wanted to do, um, but she was good at. I mean, she really learned a lot of languages. So she was. She started out studying languages, which is not the greatest school for languages. So she ended up um, realizing that Japan's math and everything else was so more advanced than here that she was naturally talented at at uh, like computer engineering, and that's what she ended up uh, studying there. She let it later on transfer to UNM. That's kind of where we met. But I uh, um, guess that's about it about her. Is there anything else you want to say about her, Rish? Uh No, just that she's a delightful woman that uh, we've certainly embraced. <clears throat> yeah, our daughter is, uh, found out early in her life that uh, when she got involved with a uh, uh, helping uh, youth program or, or uh, when she was younger and uh, she started um, working with handicapped people, that's where they placed her. And so she got involved in like a handicapped basketball league and she'd get, she's, she's a great athlete on her own. Um, but she started, she went out and got in a wheelchair and started playing wheelchair with, uh, basketball with them. And it kind of got her, uh, in, uh, her mind thinking about prosthetics and stuff like that. Um, plus she's really good at science and math, which all of that led her into, uh, pursuing prosthetics. So she's a senior, like I said, and she's right now looking at a lot of, uh, uh schools, uh, that have prosthetic um, uh, programs uh, for the next for the next two years or whatever it is. So she's doing that. Uh, um, guess a little bit about me. Uh, we were born and raised in Taos. I have uh, my brother and sister like seven and eight years or eight and nine years older than me. So I was pretty much raised an only child. So we're kind of kind of a little different in a lot of ways, but. Uh, Let's see. I uh, gave. I'm fairly new Christian. I uh, gave my life to Christ two, two, two or three years ago at a Easter sunrise service with, with uh, Skip, and then uh, taking baby steps, I guess, to to, to being a Christian. Um, this last year, uh, we went on a trip to Israel, and Ray took us all on a trip to Israel, and uh, I had the honor of being baptized in the Jordan by uh, by Bill. Um, that was quite an experience. But uh, so that's uh, that's probably pretty much my story. Great, good. Well, uh, why don't we? Any prayer needs that you and Junko and or Emmy? Um. Yeah, I guess. Uh, pray for my daughter. She she was meant to help Christian. Her whole career, she considered herself a Christian, um, but she went off to school and uh, she found a really really nice boyfriend. He's he's a really great guy, um, but he's an atheist. So yeah, we need a little prayer for that. Rev. 
Ray, it's Denise. Go ahead. I just wanted to ask for prayer for the United States and for Israel as the uh, the Prime Minister is coming on the 15th to Washington to confirm that uh, new peace treaty and for protection and mostly that their eyes will be open because this very soon is the Feast of Rosh Hashanah. Okay. Uh-huh. Keep that in prayer. And it's about time to leave. Have okay. a good- Thanks, Lewis. Thanks, Ray. Thanks, Ray. Bye-bye. Have a good week. Great. You too. Thanks, Ray. Bye. Bye. See ya.